Hello, my name is Adam Sandler. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I stand before you trembling with thankful glee as I receive the so-called best actor trophy, independently speaking, of course. I'd like to also give a shout out to my fellow nominees who will now and forever be known as the guys who lost to fucking Adam Sandler. <laughs> On the auspicious event at the Oscars where 1917 swept every category, we decided to cover another World War I film of value, uh, Pass the Glory. Yeah, I mean, that's what we planned, but then 1917 didn't win, as you recall. In fact, uh, I think last night, or last week when we covered Parasite, we kind of made that happen. But it kind of worked out that we decided to cover that, because Kirk Douglas died instead, so Paz of Glory was still a good choice, right? That's definitely why we I chose mean, you win some and you lose some, but uh, I, I'm very surprised that 1917 didn't get... Uh, it won a few technical categories, but... Um, I think we're much more excited with the reality of what we got at the Oscars. Uh, I definitely agree with that, uh, even though during our little uh, uh, co- you know, competition between what we thought would win when I was talking about Hollywood a lot last week, I just got entirely smashed uh, on <laughs> what I thought was going to win and not. I, I had a very bad prediction. But I was right that 1917 <laughs> did not get all of the major awards like most people thought it was going to, like all of the other awards kind of predicted. We both filled out ballots. I think I got 17, right? And you got... Um, seven. What, it was seven. seven. It was seven. <laughs> and then our friend, our friend Will, of course, won the ballot, and he got everything but, like, one or two right, which is blasphemous. Oh, especially um, since he's like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, I don't I don't have any idea what I'm doing. I don't get this. I think he sharked us, I think is what happened here, is that he, yeah. he totally bullshitted his way to winning... It's like when you start a fantasy football league and someone's like, I don't watch football. I don't know. They're always going to win that first season. Yeah. It's almost guaranteed at that point. It's that beginner's luck thing or whatever here. But, you know, he did a good job. And again, by sticking mostly to what the other awards kind of uh, predicted, but going against the grain and figuring that Parasite was going to take the major award in an upset, uh, I think was smart. Actually looking back and seeing who all did the the most campaigning and, you know, where the social buzz was mostly, this actually turned out pretty good accurately it mirrored that very much so even down yeah. to something like a uh, brad pitt winning best supporting actor i mean i based mine entirely on guilds and social buzz so i i didn't get a bunch wrong but uh, right. i feel i feel good about my outcomes anyway because that was a hell of a night. i think my problem I, um, was that i went off of most social buzz from like two months ago was what i kind of did yeah, so i had yeah, like did. lots of uh <laughs> irishman recognition still which got completely shut yeah. out uh you know and i should have realized that in the upcoming weeks here that everyone kind of shied away from that and parasite just had it was so a much big thing when it came out but there was like a month of buzz and then it was done it, it's like the equivalent of going with stars born last year right yeah so i think that was my mistake hopefully i'll learn from that next year uh but i i'm over the moon over the fact that Parasite took home four Oscars, but particularly Best Picture. And as I said last week, I have such a good feeling that it's going to uh, shake up the landscape for our American audiences, at least enough to just put things in a different and uh, more optimistic direction. Well, Bong Joon-ho, he matched Disney's numbers from 70 years ago, which is particularly impressive and inspiring. Four Oscars in one night. It's very incredible. Amazing. Uh, And I'm sure he wasn't expecting it either. During one of his speeches, I believe it was during the Best Director win, he was like, ah, you know, I thought I was done making speeches for today. 
<laughs> his uh, energy is always fascinating at awards because uh, I could tell he got slightly moved more every time he came up on stage. Once he was up there for a director and shouting out uh, Scorsese, mm-hmm. and Scorsese was pointing up to the top of the stage, I thought, I thought that's even better than Scorsese winning. That recognition is just a beautiful thing. I'm sure Scorsese was also elated that uh, yeah. Bong took home these very deserved prizes. And that's the thing, I think, to note as well, uh, is that Parasite and Bong and everyone involved in the production are entirely deserving of all the accolades they received on this long you know, trip through the award season here. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I know film Twitter sees it one way. Like this is a older white man that's you know already done everything there is to do in movies. But uh, at the same time, Scorsese's World Cinema Project has brought forward really important uh, South Korean films, like like the one that inspired Parasite, The Handmaiden, which is a or The Handmaid. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a. Uh great to see this camaraderie between all of the directors here and you know seeing bong have such a you know celebration there everybody was you know up on their feet for for parasite winning yeah. and you know of course i i haven't seen that in a while i i don't feel like we had that at all last year where there was a big celebratory like you know outburst when something won there was a there was a feeling of dread over the whole thing oh and that's why i'm I'm so optimistic going forward now, seeing this, you know, total embrace of this, you know, South Korean filmmaker and this great film that really resonated with American audiences and audiences around the world as well. And of course, as they thanked in their best picture speech as well, the South Korean audience, especially who lifted them up here in the first place, you know, who they really owe a great thanks to and the continued support. And I'm really like I said, optimistic about the landscape going forward. I've seen, I've recommended the film to many people now, people who don't always watch lots of movies, and they've all seemed to love it. And I'm so glad to see it have such universal praise and success, even despite my, you know, personal critiques that you heard, you know, last week a little bit. I'm still more than happy to praise the film up and down. And uh, again, Parasite winning so much this, you know, this past award season here is the greatest outcome you know for this this past year and it really shows i think a stark difference in quality that we've seen uh especially compared to like the 2018 and how the the academy is really recognizing truly great films as you know they deserve to be recognized i think just down the ballot this year there was such a difference in quality like we didn't have a black panther in there we didn't have a green book or we didn't have a bow rap right pretty much everything in the ballot was uh you know, except Judy's win, which is for a lot of reasons. I think there everything looks pretty good there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could question a couple of other things, like you might want to question Joker's presence, uh, but it's not like it's it's no. undeserving. Uh, yeah. It is. I think Joker got what it fucking deserves. Yeah, it deserves. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, it deserves the wins that it did get. You know, people really love the score, and of course, Joaquin. That was a long time coming. This is as per usual mm. at the Oscars, not the performance he deserves for but the one he you know finally got uh and it's as a film it's not out of place necessarily in the nominees here it's just it's a little different than everything going on it still tackles a lot of uh interesting problems and you know it really resonated with people uh but you know there wasn't any major upsets i think this this time like we usually see where something totally undeserving took away a prize from something that you know really deserved it more like everything you can see and say that makes sense and that was deserved in something every film that was nominated this year felt like it deserved to be up there in some regard and the films that weren't nominated yeah you could pick one or you know two other you know out of the others here but you know it, it really is a trade-off of 
just you know an excess of great options. I think because the acting categories are so stacked, one result that was very awkward through the show were a lot of jokes about not having black people and not enough women, and uh, I'd just like to see more of a reality where it doesn't have to be a punchline, because that, that feels really gross to me. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's okay because you joke about it. Yeah, um, the Academy obviously still has a, a little bit of a representation problem. You know, we shut out women directors mm-hmm. still this year, which is a real shame. But this is also, we have to remember to praise when they do get things right. Again, the, the recognition of, you know, Parasite and, you know, the South Korean, you know, film industry and Bong, especially here. They could have used some actor nominations, but that's still a step the Academy is working towards. I want to, I want to recognize the great step forward this is. The fact that a foreign language film has never taken home best picture before tonight it was it's unprecedented this this win and truly incredible and it feels like a giant upset but it's not an upsetting one it's a very good upset to have yeah well it's a it's a it's a watershed moment i think for the academy um you know we can point out as well how non-american films have won before you know we've seen a couple of yeah. british films there was a french film that won with the artist in 2011 but um you know but the artist, you know, that's American production. Everyone on it's American. No, well, it's, it's not quite. The artist good, was a French production with French actors. It's just I that mean, it was subtitled, funded by the French. It, it, well, and it had French actors as well, but it was still accessible, more or less, for American audiences because it had that that English, you know, transfer with the you know the subtitles and whatnot because it was made as a silent movie. But and that's why I guess Parasite does feel different. It's also it's. It's simultaneously more foreign to American audience, but also incredibly accessible, and it showcases how not so different their films are from ours, and how valid they are to be on the same stage. You know, and I, mm. I truly expect this to open up the door to, at the very least, uh, a lot of great Korean cinema for you know just regular American audience members, and I, I hope it you know allows for more theaters to showcase non-American films. You know, and I hope that we see more access to that and more openness to films that don't, you know, we don't share that language with. Um, I think at least it's going to help people go explore more Bong Joon-ho pictures and uh, at least get everyone to watch Parasite. I think that's the best outcome we could hope for. Yeah, and it's not like people haven't already, you know, again, it's it's resonated with people a great, great deal. It's the most popular film on Letterboxd right now, I believe. It has been for some time, and it's only going to become more popular. Not even just popular, it's the highest rated of all yeah. time. <laughs> Above Godfather. Right. That's crazy. And, and that has a lot to do with, you know, what's in the zeitgeist as well. Like, that doesn't mean it's the best film ever made, but, you know, I it mean, just... I also don't feel like it's not to some people. Oh, I yeah. Like people genuinely believe that right now. Like, like, they're having a moment where that's a... I don't feel like it's a false belief. Mm-mm. Like, I don't feel like people are pumping the score up to kind of make up for some disparity. It's like, maybe if Letterboxd existed when Godfather came out, we'd have the same thing, right? Well, and, and it's the thing, like, with Godfather, you see the parallel there. It's because Godfather is an incredibly popular, great film. And it just shows that how much of a, a wave of uh, recognition that Parasite has gotten here that has resonated with so many people that it is shot to the top. Uh, not necessarily that it is the best film ever, but certainly that it's deserving to be, uh, you know, claimed to be so great by so many yeah, people. Yeah, I, 
I really enjoyed the I, idea of the Spirit Awards the night before. I thought they were so much better than the mm-hmm. Oscars. I was completely resigned to that's the award show for me. And then the Oscars showed up and did something good. I, I was very impressed. And the Spirit Awards kind of uh, kind of gave it up with the the farewell, which isn't a great movie anyway. But uh, well, I, I did want to ask as well. What do you think of the the changes in the Oscar ceremonies? Oh. I know I know you're fairly yeah. new to them, like having just watched only the last two. But since they both haven't had a host, do you think that's a good decision and they should continue that? No, going forward? because I mean they had a, of course they had. They have people come out and present anyway and introduce people, which is essentially a host, right? I mean, they had Chris Rock yeah, yeah. or whoever come out and do the whole thing. That, that is a little uh, awkward, but do you think it would be better if they just cut that out and had just, like, presenters present, present, present? They did an interesting change this year that they've never done, which is they montaged everything together, and they had nicely cut videos presenting each choice. But then right afterwards, they also introduced who the nominees were. So it was very redundant, but I thought they had something there. Uh, I think if they combine that with announcing them at the same time, I, I think they've got a streamlined thing there. The the problem really is, that, and I think what steers people away from the Oscars generally, is the, the catch-22 of it being so yeah. long... But it need it needing to be so long so they can fit in those commercial breaks to to make yeah, it worth yeah. you know they're the putting cost. on a TV show. I remember they want you to watch it. Yeah, and that's it's a whole lot of pageantry, and that's why all the song numbers are in there as well. And it's you know just kind of ridiculously long, and they used to have it filled with jokes from the hosts yeah. all the times, and it's it's a little excessive for people who just want to watch it for the awards. But that's not what the most people are watching the Oscars for necessarily. They want they want that. Uh, performative aspect to it too. No, I mean people. I mean regular people are just finding out what movies to watch right now. You know, uh, it's a it's a show mm. for them, and it's like a it's like the biggest reality show we have. So, in some sense, I just like yeah. that everything could go wrong at any moment, and that some of it did. Um, there's 14 song numbers this year, which I think you could cut in half. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> I mean stuff like Eminem coming uh, back for his what 2003 win that he didn't even show up for in 2003. I don't know if we need a song number from him. Yeah, uh, I think if you just stick to what the original song yeah. nominations are, you'd be better there off. There was a guy who came up and um, did a rap that was supposed to be funny. I forget the guy's name, but it was it was super unfunny and awkward. <laughs> and he was trying to he was trying to recap shame. half the show. I guess like I guess like Olaf does in Frozen too. He he comes up there and he's this big awkward strange guy and i don't know what the purpose is uh if you've been watching the show then you know all that if you don't then you have twitter i don't know why you need that it's 2020 one of the other problem one of the other problems as well speaking of 2020 is uh the lack of accessibility for a lot of people for the oscars if you don't have a cable subscription you have like no way of watching it which is not at all good for you know the the 21st century now uh, we need to, you know, repair that. I was personally not able to watch them physically at the time. I just kept up with the updates online, and then I went back and watched all the speeches and later I on. I feel like the Indie Spirit Awards have that going for them. At least you could watch it on Twitter, and it is it is independent. And it was great to see people like Jaren Blaschke with the, the Lighthouse getting, you know... I feel like because she's a woman DP that she's not going to get recognized at the Oscars, and we're going to give it to Deacons just right again. Uh, uh, that was interesting to me. 
Well, no. you know, it's not surprising that Deacons gets, you know, is going to get all his wins now. Now that he's broken the mold with 2049, he's going to just claim well, all the Oscars. He has Oscars a lot of making up to career. do. <laughs> not undeservedly. I mean, it's, it's not like he missed exactly. three of them and then, then he got one. It's like he missed about 20 and, you know, we have a little bit of making up to do. Uh, yeah, so by all means, I'm not upset that he won geez. over the lighthouse necessarily, but you know, I would have loved to see that recognition since it was, was the there only nomination. Any, got. I, I know, I thought I thought Defoe could have been in there, and he won at the Independence Spirit Awards, which was my yeah. most important award. So I guess I guess they did that, but but really now, Parasite is a big deal. I thought like South Korea wouldn't even submit it to international so they could get the vote otherwise, but man, getting all four categories they're so important. Uh, I think once I saw that 1917 yeah, wasn't getting more than technical categories, I started sweating that in my ballot. It it almost seemed like that was a weird thing. It's like coming up to the moment where they announced it, it almost felt like there couldn't be another option, but it was still yeah. a great shock to see it win. Like, like I was waiting when, you know, the announcement happened, and I kept, like, refreshing when I saw people freaking out to get a, a full confirmation. I'm like, it's not a screw-up, is it? It's not, like, a La La Land situation, <laughs> and, right? This is real? And mine was <laughs> lagged about a minute and a half behind Australia, so, of course, our friend posted a minute and a half early, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I, I don't get to see it live, but I'm, I'm super happy. No, it, it's, again, the, the best thing that could have happened, and a totally unprecedented thing and incredible. Uh, I am glad as well that they they recognized it in both Best International yeah. Film and Best Picture because it would have been really weird if they did, like, if they gave Pain and Glory, like, Best International Film and then they gave it to Best Picture. Like, it, yeah. it would have just caused a weird thing, but now we have this weird, uh, you know, category thing where, where this category does seem redundant now, the Best International Film, if we're going to recognize... You know, international. We're at about twenty percent of the academy is international. In twenty twenty two, they want to make it twenty five percent. So you have to imagine if twenty five percent of the ballots are international, we're going to be getting a lot of uh, at least nominations for international film. They should be filling out other categories soon. So I'm excited for that. So it was a great award season overall. I'm very happy with the everything that came out last year. And I don't know what this year's looks like. It looks a little thin right now, but we never know till can. Yep, uh, we'll, we'll see. I know we did just get a poster and there's a trailer that drops tomorrow for Wes Anderson's new film. Uh, the French, French Dispatch, yeah. Yes, so maybe that'll be the first uh, big big feature we have to look for, forward to this year. Yeah, um, I know there's a lot of genre stuff happening and it'll be a, it'll be a weird year for awards, but uh, I think we got everything last year, so I'm happy. Yeah, I'm very happy with the end of uh, the decade with 2019, and again, couldn't be more elated that Parasite has launched us into hopefully a new wave of uh, international recognition. It really does feel like we're leaving an era of exclusion and entering into something new, so I'm very excited to see hopefully some more international films getting U.S. release dates. Yes, certainly. Uh, in the meantime, uh, why don't we take a look at what is... Uh, has come out this week, this past week or so. Okay. We've got some films to talk about, right? Yeah, we have a Bean Pole, which uh, was a very strange picture put out by Kino Lorber. It's it's pretty great. Um, I think it may be one of the best early films of the year, but of course this is like a holdover from last year's festivals, and uh, some small pictures like this just get lost in that shuffle. Mm -hmm. It's bound to happen, and uh, also being a uh, non-American film, you know, of course it gets over here a little later. Hmm. Um, and it is based in Leningrad, World War Two. It's a uh, around nineteen forty-five. It's a very strange picture about uh, sort of the fallout of war. Not not really any 
peace of war exactly, but uh, this woman has these weird, I don't know what to call them, choking spells, and uh, she kind of asphyxiates, and she has a little kid. Uh, she falls on it and smothers the kid to death. Uh, it's oh, kind no. of a terrifying movie. Uh, I was kind of shaking half the movie. That does. That uh, sounds uh, terrible, but also very interesting to watch. You said it takes yeah. place in a uh, World War Two in Leningrad. Yeah, and um, you get to see her personal and psychological fallout from the war. It's very well developed. I was shocked it was not shot by a woman because it has so much female gaze and uh, so much different idea of their bodies, and it's colored a lot like a portrait of a lady on fire, heavy in greens. And I mean, they even she even paints in green while wearing a green dress. It. You know, green mm. usually is your, you know, like a stoplight. It's your signal, everything's okay, and go. And this, it's more cautionary and flipping the color on its head. It reminds me a bit of, uh, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually, but the same kind of color palette uh, indication with vertigo. Yeah. Vertigo is definitely a color of, uh, green is a color of caution and vertigo. You know, it's associated with the the female character there, Kim Novak's Absolutely. character. That's an even better draw. It has a lot in common with that kind of color coding. And uh, it's, it's really good. I want to review it this week. I... Uh, I need to go back and watch some of it because I was I was a little bit shaken and disturbed, and I just thought I was getting a pretty average war picture. But this is a pretty great one that I uh, I might come back to and talk about again. That's great to hear. I'm I'm especially interested in uh, particularly World War II films from the perspective yeah. of the sides that we don't often see. Again, the the German perspective and the Russian perspective, the ones we we fought against more so, the Japanese perspective as well, because you know history is told by the winners in the end. So yeah, to so see what... it. To see it from that other side, it gives you a whole other perspective on this conflict that's not perhaps so black and white as we usually like to portray. It gets part of what I love about the third man, which is being in that demolished city that's just completely ruined by war, and you're, you're dealing with the havoc of it, but on this, more of an interpersonal level. So I'm very excited, and I have a lot more thinking to do about Beanpole. That's good. Well, uh, what about our another film this week? Is it also uh, one to recommend to people? Um, Sonic the Hedgehog, you came out, uh, you drove all the way from Portland for this. Yeah, uh, this was interesting, because I actually, uh, I saw this, this was, this was the first film of 2020 for me. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. You came all the way from Portland to watch this, to Seattle. I, I did, you gave, you had a special screening, uh, available for you, pre-screening for the review of the film, which will be up on the site, uh, this week, and then, uh, I came up, you had an extra space for me and my fiance. Uh, and I have to say, uh, I hope the next time you invite me up, it is not, uh, it is a better film, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad to see you guys, but, uh, I think that was a lot better than going to the movie. Uh, when we went and got wings after and talked about yeah. it, I had a lot more fun than, uh, going through this, uh, pretty basic kids movie. That's like a road trip movie with a uh, very little nostalgia attached to it, to the old video games. Yeah. Uh. I guess to give my my thoughts on it, I thought it was uh, the my the biggest sin of it for me was how emotionally cloying and uh, terribly written it was. Like it's yeah. it's really trying to play to to these uh, vacant emotions. I feel like where where it'll and it's so erratic too. It'll switch from like a full on comedy sequence, you know, just throwing out lightning fast jokes, and then it'll be like, oh no, I'm a lonely hedgehog, and you know, I'm sad. Feel bad for me. <laughs> Um, I think I got concerned when I started looking closer at some of the writing credits beforehand. Uh, I don't feel like it comes from a very good lineage. or um, the, I mean, the director's done some cute short work, but uh, I mean, at that point, you, you know, it's not a lot to go on while, uh, while the writers are working on pretty dumb stuff like Transylvania, which I've never heard of. 
Transylvania? What? Uh, dorm days? Um, sledgehammers at Dawn? Nobody's ever heard of any of this. It's all basic slasher stuff. Uh, and then they break into like the kids' game, and I just realized that uh, a little bit before, there wasn't going to be much going here. And uh, I don't know. At least the movie went fast. I think that's my headline of the review. Yeah, well, that was very clear from the get-go of it, because it starts out in that super cliche way where they, they're starting in the middle of the conflict, and it's like, oh, hi, my name's Sonic, you're probably wondering how I got here. Well, let's flash back to this contrived backstory that has no link to the video games, we're gonna go through it in two minutes flat, and then, hey, you know, we're back into things. It's just, it's so much, you know, and it just goes by really quickly, it's like, don't care, just gotta get through all the beginning stuff so we can get to the shenanigans. It's like, oh, okay, so this film takes the you know, the tagline, real literally there. Just gotta go fast, fast through everything, fast, fast, fast. I think the appeal of the video games also was never that he went fast. I thought it was always about level design and that it enabled you to go, you know, Mario was always left or right, and then Sonic was, you could zigzag, you could take hidden paths, you could go through pipes, uh, you could be transported to all kinds of different parts of a level, and um, that changed video game design in some ways, and uh, every time they tried to make a new Sonic game, it was all about speed, and that's where the legacy really got lost every time they brought it to 3D. Yeah, when they did weird things, like, what the fuck was that werewolf Sonic game? <laughs> and Sonic uh, and Shadow the Hedgehog. It, as, every time <laughs> yeah. you get to his stupid friends. Uh, I, I mean, I like Sonic Adventure 2, and I like like Rogue the Bat and Big the Cat and uh, pretty much the basic lineup, but once you get into his weird friends, it gets real fucked up. Yeah, Sonic is, is a storied history of going in bizarre directions and yeah. uh, not not doing successfully so this is just another notch in the belt there for the series honestly <laughs> i mean it had such a clear through line when it started right like it was like sonic one two three and then there was a weird thing with sega's hardware so they had to decide if sonic and knuckles couldn't be its own game suddenly it became like an attach on like there's such a weird history then sonic cd was Maybe the best one, but it was on bad hardware, so no one played it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we had, like, Spinball and suddenly, like, Sonic Shuffle and all kinds of weird diversions. Sonic Racing, where he races on foot, that was a weird one. Right, so so honestly, considering all the other bad and weird diversions, it's no surprise that this movie is an unsuccessful outing. And based on every... I mean, if you watched the trailers and thought this was going to be good, then I don't know, your radar must be really off. I at least went in with the expectations that this was going to be terrible. Yeah. And, and it, so I wasn't, like, disappointed walking out. I was actually fairly entertained by by the <laughs> yeah. movie like i didn't hate it necessarily no. walking out but i recognized the mediocrity present completely throughout and i i was upset at some point in how like uh, condescending i felt the film was to the audience and how oh, yeah. pandering it was to just total like modern memes that aren't going to age well you know how you know cloying like i said it was emotionally how you know totally giving it was to very you know blunt uh you know, sponsors for the film. The The product placement was particularly egregious. There's two, like, really overt and, you know, not at all subtle Olive Garden references. Um, they they have a phone call <laughs> where they have to say the line, when you're there, you're family. Yeah, and there's, a, there's also, you know, there's the obvious Zillow ad placement as well where they highlight that. They, they even got the website pulled up for it. It's just, it's all very obviously unnatural and just a showcase mm-hmm. for the, the sponsors there which is always a bad thing in my mind with the film. Like, you're obviously just selling your soul there. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like uh, 
the probably the worst Sonic diversion is also called Sonic the Hedgehog when they went in 2006 and they made oh, him yeah. fall in love with the human in his broken ass video game. That uh, that was that's an infamous video game. <laughs> I think I got that for 60 bucks and I don't think it ever functioned. I I couldn't get past like the third level cuz mine was broken. Mhm. Yeah, th- so, I mean that was just a huge shame. And I like I like really bad video games, but I don't like unplayable ones. Right. Well, it's just it's I, I found it so odd as well that the film you know, wanted to pander to a younger audience, which was very obviously it worked because all the kids in the audience we had yeah. you know, resonated with all the Fortnite references and stuff. But you know, you would think that if you really wanted to be representative of the fan base, you would go full nostalgic with it, and, and you would pander to that, and it would feel more authentic. Like that's the weird thing as well. Like the fact that there's a totally made up backstory for Sonic in the film that's yeah, really unnecessary, weird. and you have a whole catalog of history to pull from. I don't know if that's from a comic book or one of the cartoons, but I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm pretty I mean, sure it's just the, made up. <laughs> I watched the Dick cartoons growing up. I don't know mm. if you watched a lot of Dick growing up, but... Uh, no, no, not really. <laughs> uh, you guys are giving me a bad time again because I, I don't say D-I-C. <laughs> you, you, you like to pronounce out all of the acronyms of things, which, which I take every opportunity to make fun of you for. Yeah, I got dick every Saturday morning growing up, so I I knew all about <laughs> what was going on with Sonic. <laughs> uh, I I feel really awkward about Sonic. I I thought it could have been something better because we just got the first video game uh, kind of remake that's worked with the uh, Sonic Plus the last few years. So the the video games are back on track, but uh, that's it good. might never get on track with movies now. I feel oh. like this is a bad omen. It it is, and it, again, obviously because of how pandering it is, uh, you know. It's not terrible, terrible. Like again, for entertainment wise, and it's something your kids will enjoy. But I feel like it's just so vapid and you know very, uh, you know, oblique in what it's trying to do, which is you know a, a terrible sin in my mind. At least Jim Carrey is entertaining, though. That's the like, the one. Yeah, we haven't factor. talked about the one thing about the movie. <laughs> yeah, Jim Carrey is really fun in it. Yeah, it's like classic, you know, 90s Jim Carrey, and he's doing the full silly thing, and he does a good job of that. Uh, even even some of the dumber jokes that he has, I enjoy. He he has the good jokes of the movie. Sonic has all of the bad ones. Oh, Sonics are horrible. Yeah. They're so bad. I like when he, what is it, he eats Taco Bell or something, and then he, he has a big oh my fart God. and says it ruined his fur. That, that yeah, they they have a fart joke in the movie, which, again, it, it, like, when that point happened, I'm like, okay, so this movie just entirely, I'm writing it off entirely at this point, because you can't even rise above <laughs> crass potty humor. It feels like we're in the 90s, at the point where we got, like, the Super Mario Brothers movie, where there was no franchise control. I think brands have a lot more uh, close identity control now, especially Nintendo, where they don't launch anything that they're not directly involved with. I don't yeah. think Sega has a lot of say right now, but, uh... I know Nintendo's doing a Mario movie, and that will probably be a lot closer to at least nostalgia for the video game. We hope so. I think if you're going to do any of these, that I think you should try and stay, stick more to the material. Not that there's a lot of you know backstory or anything for a Mario movie to go with, no, but you know, no. be be authentic to the characters is I think what we want here. And it does not feel like Sonic is very authentic here. He he definitely feels like an amalgamation of pop references, you know. Yeah, um, I've been looking forward to Sonic for a while, I guess, just because I I like Sega and well, yeah. I don't know. It's it's weird being a Sega fan anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I th- you're always kind of like second class in video games, but then you realize that you know your video games were faster and 
they had more attitude, and this doesn't really have anything that I thought was em- emblematic of what was cool. No, yeah, I certainly agree, and it's it's very it's mediocre, it's average at best, you know, and then it's it's totally emotionally, you know, attempting to be manipulative and you know pandering bullshit all the rest of the time. I never really understood why Sega kept sticking with Sonic anyway, because like they had Alex the Kid, then that evolved into Sonic basically, and then they they had such better games afterwards. Like I don't know why they didn't develop like Jet Set Radio or one of their really great games that came after Sonic instead. But I oh guess well. he was just—he was just so much more marketable. You know, he's like yeah. an icon, right? I just think that the mascot era has also passed. Uh, yeah. It might work in movies now, but that does not work in games anymore. Um, and that's the other weird thing, like I said, with why not? You know, cater to the nostalgia aspect is yeah. that you know, kids today who gives a shit about Sonic? Sonic hasn't been relevant. Yeah, maybe you have to set it why like is... in the '90s and kind of get back and have like a Genesis in there or something video gamey. But talking about like Amazon delivering stuff with drones isn't going to work in two years. Oh, and then you got all the, like I said, the Fortnite references. Oh, yeah. Sonic flosses like three times throughout the movie. <laughs> and he says, nailed it, which every kid in our theater repeated in like a big PewDiePie echo ch- chamber, which was cool. Yeah. It was it was funny. The kids yeah, were they entertaining. It. it was funny to see what I they I wouldn't say they at. loved it. I didn't uh, like getting my chair I think, kicked. I think kids could sit through <laughs> anything uh, that's basically yeah. mediocre competency and get something out of it. So that's fine. This this clearly catered to them and they enjoyed it, but it's entirely disposable. They're not going to care about this, you know, two minutes after they finish. At least, it. I guess we haven't really talked about how grotesque the original was, but they at least they cleaned it up. I, I don't know if it's a good thing. Oh yeah, I, it could have gotten a cult following. Now it needs to break ninety five million box office. Yeah, I I probably would not have seen it had they not fixed it, and I I think that's the same for a lot of people. But at the same time, you lose the people who wanted to see the monstrosity, yeah. kind of like like cats. Although you can see there what happened, you know, cats totally bombed despite you know the the ironic appeal. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe this will you know this change I think will probably be better. But it is still it is awful still about the the animators being fired just right after. I feel weird giving cats a seven and this a three since this fixed its problems and cats didn't quite. Yeah, well, I mean, cats. I I don't know. Did it feel as soulless as this? Did it feel as pandering? I wouldn't say it pandered at all because it. I don't think it could keep an audience anyway. <laughs> Right. Well, and again, the, from a script level, it's just Sonic was so basic and also so like all over the place and yeah. so at least so cats ter- didn't it's, have a script. Yeah, like it, it, its ambitions were very clear from the the outset. It sounds like there, and that we're not going to bother with a script because this is cats. And this is a you know a yeah. fucking whatever story. You're here for the music and the creepy cat CGI. Yeah. Um. Uh. From one monstrosity to another. We look at the horrors of war. Uh, that, that's a bad yeah. That, that that's a fantastic transition. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. The parallels between Sonic and the Stanley Kubrick film are undeniable. Uh, yeah, because Stanley Kubrick has a lot with in common with Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, he was going to direct a Sonic movie. I think at one point, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, but then he died. It, it became eyes wide shut. <laughs> yeah. That's what it evolved into, and now you see the link between all the Sonic porn and Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, of it course. Makes sense now. Yeah, they all—they were all wearing Sonic masks. Yep, <laughs> three costumes. That was their masquerade. 
that that was the initial plan is that it was going to be a furry convention but you know uh the world wasn't ready for that yet probably still isn't honestly but enough about furry conventions we're here to respect kirk <laughs> douglas <laughs> you're you're right what are we doing <laughs> <laughs> so yes uh kirk douglas passed away this last week which was very sad i thought despite how long he lived he had a great long long life for yeah. years i think we've been saying holy shit kirk douglas is still alive but he finally passed away at 103 and yeah yeah beautiful man that's uh comes from the old classic hollywood and one of our last remaining so uh that's a huge loss to uh kind of the the sense of time in movies and and a sense of what was happening back then yeah i, I would say he's the last icon of yeah. classic hollywood finally go we still have some people like uh olivia de havilland is still around mm. she's 103 as well but she wasn't as uh, prolific necessarily or as iconic as kirk douglas was she was more of a you know secondary she starred alongside errol flynn in several swashbuckling films that people don't really recognize but aside from that she didn't have quite the uh persona that kirk douglas did this could be said to be one of his great roles and uh, there was a thing back then where if you came from World War II and you were, uh, you know, a veteran coming into movies, there was a level of respect that's a little bit different than, like, if a veteran came out of the war now, you know, we have, like, one major actor that's like that, but about half of Hollywood felt that way back then. Well, it has a lot to do with the perception of that war in particular as well. Mm -hmm. You know, World War II was seen as a very heroic thing, and there has not been anything near that at all you know since you know and we haven't you know every conflict we've had since then is even messier and you know all sorts of political you know uh mess you know messiness and whatnot but as at the point uh world war one is also its own kind of interesting thing and as we mentioned here in the beginning uh we're, it's only recently we're seeing a resurgence in discussion and interest in world war one with the likes of 1917 and peter jackson's documentary uh they shall not grow old uh you know for the longest time and i think still paths of glory is the definitive world war one film i think it's as we had just hit the centennial for its hundred year of ending in 1918 that we started looking more closely at uh what can we still do in this ground apparently there's a lot more because I mean, 1917, I could watch it and I could see all the blueprint for Pass the Glory within it. Um, especially what stands out to me are like uh, reverse tracking shots in the trenches, I would say is like the yeah, big thing. Of course. Thing. That's the big thing everyone really remembers and the biggest influential thing, I think, about uh, the cinematography in Paths of Glory is that these these tracking shots through the trenches as bombs go off above and everything, super memorable. And they, you know, I see similar scenes like that echoed in even other war films like Apocalypse Now yeah. with, uh, um, you know, Kilgore's character just being unflinching as bombs are going off. And you see that same thing here well, in Paths of I Glory think, first. Uh, I think the brilliant thing watching it is I could see where you'd want to make a one-shot movie. Right, I feel like the right. structure of uh, Pasigori is like it's five vignettes. Right, it's essentially it could be five one takes, but it's not. Yeah, it's and you see a lot of great long takes and you know moving shots throughout the film, both in the trenches and in the courtroom scenes. You see lots of long dollying shots yeah. throughout the courtroom there. So I think that might be like just a huge inspiration on Sam Mendes oh, there for wanting to take one take. Just basically, what if we take all the great long shots in Paths of Glory we make an entire film of that. I almost feel that yeah. Paths of Glory could work better in that way because 
Uh, well, they they shot it all on a farm for like a million bucks, right? Like they're just hiding in yep. little trenches dug around a farm, and you never see, you never get any sense or context for a battlefield, and you never see like the opposing army. So it could really be restrained and taken with one shot. So I really feel where that influence could come from. Oh, I think there's there's certainly an important to the edit, and we don't want to act like you know it should have been one shot, yeah. but we definitely see that inspiration, and again, the value of long takes like that we see showcased throughout. Um, but but Paths of Glory does feel very separate and distinct in its acts, I think as well, because very clearly the first half is all about being in the trenches, the mm-hmm. horror of that war and stuff, and then the second half is all about the aftermath and the you know the terror of the system and the total you know moral indignation of uh these conflicts i think because it's so fixated on one side of the war and that we only get the fallout of that side i don't feel like we feel any victory or any sense of glory at all so the title's very ironic in fact and i forget the poem exactly but it's basically that the paths of glory only end in rows of death right uh and that's a big kind of thing as well with it you know it's very hard not to glorify war in a film like this or in any war film mm-hmm. really um you know to make it seem like the battle is some thrilling exercise in uh you know patriotism and uh, you know uh you know create heroes out of people here and that's never the case with Panzer. i glory. feel like by uh, never framing Roger... an enemy that goes a long way too if it showed the germans Ex- it could be a lot bingo worse. I think that's that's the secret to it all here is that there's no acts of heroism really in the film because there's no you know real enemy to see and to conquer. Yeah. You know, we just get the perspective from the bunker and the the pointless carnage of them dying, you know, out in the uh, no man's zone. I mean, it's all bad and senseless. There's no good act of valor here. No, not not even. And again, the whole film is in fact like the opposite of that it's this, you know, f- it's this frustrating exercise in moral, you know, decay, and, you know, is what I find there, especially through the eyes. I wanted to highlight this time, especially um, George McCready's performance as the the main general. This time, I, I especially wanted to highlight uh, the villainous performance of George McCready as the main general there. In the beginning, especially, he's such a wonderful character actor, and his slithering villainy um is so great and he has a great character design as well with the giant scar on his face and he's always stood out to me as a wonderful character actor but especially in paths of glory i love him here and he he sends he stands as this centerpiece of you know vitriol and uh you know easily hateable uh figure who's basically manipulating people to their deaths yeah um it's such a interesting structure to the movie i never feel any optimism it has that central Correct uh, determinism. <laughs> Everything's going to turn out the way it is, no matter what you do. So the fact that we only get that one perspective, and the way that the general comes in, and the way he slings orders, uh, almost without any humanistic sense, it, it it feels interesting. Oh yeah, especially like during the trenches, he's just going around. That first thing he's like, ready to kill German soldier, and it's and it just feels like you you see that. Uh, total dehumanization of the enemy effectively that we get in these kind of war films is that you know killing people is just seen as this great necessary act i mean we see people start to sorry we see people that start to say things that make sense like i got a wife and i have human aspects to worry about and they're you know they have to be they have to take those down right away i mean they have to get those out of there but yet they 
they dehumanize everyone right away. Like the man who's like, I've got a wife, I've got real real concerns to worry about. That they, they just take that down immediately. Sure, I think I was I was mentioning earlier how you know they do a great job with uh, George McCready's character and how he's this totally you know this centerpiece of villainy and dehumanizing the enemies and such. And then even more so later when it comes down, like where obviously the failure mm-hmm. of the taking of the ant hill comes down on his shoulders. So he he's basically framing three random soldiers, you know, to take the fall for, uh, you know, the supposed cowardice. And I think it, it really highlights and it just creates this immense frustration throughout the second half that each of these men during the court scene we see have very valid reasons for why they weren't able to continue. Not always, and, and none of them are really the result of cowardice, you know. No, they were all doomed to begin with and they knew they were doomed, but they had to follow that order. Right, well, and that's the big thing as well, that they paint very early on through Kirk Douglas's character, you know, how pointless pushing forward is, but George mm. McCready is, is so insistent on it, and, you know, they're basically going to, you know, go ahead with or without uh, Douglas's, you know, command there. And and you see the result of that, it's this awful bloodbath of a of a fight, and then when they all come back, it's just, it's it's even worse, you know, the, the court... Yeah. The court-martialing stuff is even worse than the the massacre you see on the battlefield because you can see just how corrupt and unfair the system is, and it and it kind of reflects even a justice system outside of the you know the war situation there. That there's there's just this partial you know judge and jury, and they don't care, and they're totally willing to ignore the evidence before them, which is actually also kind of interesting reflection of a uh, our own recent. Uh, senate you know uh, series as well with the impeachment i guess there is such a feeling even in the court that it's just the same as the war that the war never ended for them mm-hmm. and it does feel as dehumanizing as being out on the battlefield where they were just trying to uh, fight for some kind of glory there is nothing for them at the end here mm-hmm. and it's really uh terrible to see them break down these three soldiers at the end and just yeah. totally lose Faith, there's, you know, especially when we get right up towards the end, there's the one guy who's just being propped up to be shot. Like, he's already basically dead after being beaten, you know, but they're still going to do it in this display of, uh, you know, humiliation, effectively. That's what this is. They're, they're humiliating and murdering these soldiers for supposed cowardice. And there's even, like, the, what, uh, it, it's really especially hard for me watching with Ralph Meeker's character, who was... You know, he was knocked out unconscious before the battle even began, but he's still being sentenced to death for this. I I feel like it's all even evoked just in the filmmaking, that senselessness and the dehumanization, and that the camera's very angry, and that their deep focus shots do so much with expressionistic lighting that they get a lot of shadows, and uh, it, it just feels like the movie is filmed with this sense as well of complete anger, and a position that it wants to take. That's something else I wanted to highlight, uh, especially as the cinematography of it. I had to remind myself a couple times watching when the film was made, because it it does not feel like it's a 1950s film. It does not, no. uh, Especially with the great tracking shots, but especially the use of lenses and framing. Uh, During the court scenes, watching each of the three accused men standing at the forefront of the camera with these big wide-angle lenses, you know, on this close you know, these close-ups of them, as they're all sectioned off into different, uh, you know, parts of the frame. One guy's on the left, and you showcase the other guy on the right side and whatnot. And it's very different for a 1950s film, and it's a much more kind of evocative and, you know, uh, expressive kind of cinematography throughout. 
Yeah, I feel like it's so sharp, and I feel like Kubrick has such a big idea. This is where he really got his, you know, start as a big director of note, and I feel like this was his first recognition. This was really, you know, one of the big that kicked him off. He had The Killing before this, which kind of got him to this place, and then his collaboration with Kirk Douglas here got him on to the next big project as well with uh, Spartacus, which of course was a, a major touchstone of Douglas's career alongside this for helping, you know, to break uh, the, the blacklist and whatnot with hiring screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, if you listen to Douglas, he has such interesting stories. He didn't really give a shit about the blacklist. He wanted to see what would happen if he brought Trumbo in, and that kind of bravery is something I think Kubrick also has. They were really mavericks at that point, trying to do yeah. anything different and against the code. There, there's obviously a you know a, a lot of other things going on with the blacklist as well. Douglas didn't do it alone, despite what he liked to say. Mm. Uh, but he was an integral figure in breaking it, and his his moral you know obligation to that. And throughout his career, uh, there's another interesting story as well where he did a picture with Vincent Minnelli called Lust for Life, where he uh, he plays a uh, Van Gogh. And uh, John Wayne, you know, uh, came up to him one day, and you know, on set, he's like, "What are you doing playing this role here? We got to be strong men. We got to, you know, for debate. We're in the, you know, in America for the audience. We got they have to see us as these strong male figures." And you know, Douglas basically told him to to f off about it or whatever because yeah. you know it was an important person to display. And I know that particular role left a big impression on him throughout his career. He would always highlight that as one of his favorite roles, alongside, of course, Paths of Glory and uh, other ones like Ace in the Hole with Billy Wilder. Well, like in that role, he doesn't play the usual uh, the usual role he would. So I could see how uh, John Wayne would be fearful about that. That's that famous, you know, interaction they had that really separates what kind of actors they are. I think certainly, you know, Douglas was not afraid to uh, open up his you know expressive side more. We like to categorize him a lot as this very gruff, you know, gangstery type actor. He's you know very dark persona in in many ways, but he also played these great, you know, heroic roles like we see here in Paz of Glory and Spartacus, but also these sensitive kind of roles like with Lust of Life. He really was uh, unafraid to tackle all sorts of characters and genres, and he, he proved himself a maverick, and, and like we said, the same way that Kubrick did with his genre hopping as well. Um, I think it stacks up even pretty well against uh, even more recent Kubricks, that it's such a foundational film with... I, I love films with economy in them, <laughs> where it feels like everything is wisely considered and that there's a cost for every scene and that it the check cashes out on everything it does. Like, for a million bucks, I can't imagine making a film. Yeah, Even a well, film like this. It's also, it's a really grand film, despite its uh, intimacy, I think. It's a, it's an intimate story. Like you said, it's small scale, but it gets a lot done with that. And it feels, because of its grand themes and its, you know, encompassing discussion of, you know, humanity, I think it makes it feel even more epic. And it's also a very nice streamlined film, being like about an hour, 40 minutes, very easy to watch, very easy to sit down and consume. And, um... World War One's always. Are you, are you still there, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to check now. Uh, World <laughs> War One's always interesting to me because there is such a dearth of really interesting objects and images. So to have that restraint behind the shots really makes it work because just being inside the trenches or whatever, you're not going to get a big feeling for architecture. It doesn't have the big guns of World War Two. So, uh, well, that's and in that time, like cinema is so in its infancy that we don't have a lot of. World War One films made like around the time it was happening, right? So it was still pretty nascent in the art form afterwards. 
We had, we had some. There was a, a number of ones, like All Quiet on the Western Front. It's a fairly notable one. It won uh, Best Picture in its year and such. But this is still really the definitive World War One film. And I'm glad you brought up the architecture, because I think there's a great juxtaposition in Paths of Glory as well, with its almost cathedral-like setting for the... Uh, the court, you know, the court marshaling going on, and they yeah. have this, they, they do this great thing where they record the audio in the room, so there's this loud echo present throughout, and it really uh, creates this, you know, idea of how grandiose they're making this, you know, in this huge big gesture, and this, you know, they're, they're and, and like I said, the echo also gives it this hollow feeling, the, yeah. the sense that the, uh, you know, the trial itself is, you know, just the show effectively they're making this big deal out of something so insignificant just to you know continue to exert their power over the soldiers effectively i feel like even like all quiet which came like a decade after the war right it's like uh, we didn't have a ton of like fundamentals about like what what this would look like so even going into the 50s of course we had so many world war ii films by then but it also helped us understand how to shoot war so all quiet might be my favorite of them but um i think kubrick also put a visual language into how this war would work what our video games would look like and then 1917's influenced by all that obviously yeah, and I would agree that any subsequent uh, World War One film is taking a whole lot from Paths of Glory and the image it, you know, presents. It is the World War One film in our mind, and because of its lasting themes and its visual impact, I, I highly doubt anything is going to come and surpass it in that department. Uh, again, especially not even just on the World War One front, but on a, a film that entirely doesn't glorify the, the violence of its subject matter. I think the only argument I'd ever take is last year's movie that Peter Jackson did, because if you just show it how it is, that's one way. But, right, um, right. Even then, it's like barren fields, and it's such a boring image, and everyone's dug in and entrenched, and it's it's a really boring uh, war to capture cinema on cinema, so I don't know how Kubrick did it, but I think the, I think the focus and the tension of only having one side works. Well, and, and he focuses on the moral situation and the characters more so than he does the actual war itself the war is a backdrop for the conflict of men Hmm. and that's the i think that's the big thing that makes it so timeless and resonant is that like i said you could you can really apply the the righteous indignation at the core of the film to almost any conflict and it still resonates and it still works and it still you know applies to today i don't know if i have a lot more on it (laughs) I you know I think we've done a good job covering it. Like I said, it's a it's a sleek film, you know, in terms of its pacing, it covers a whole lot, and uh, you know I think it's just an important one, both in the resumes of Kubrick and especially Kirk Douglas. You know, we highlighted a couple others of his here, but you know, just a couple others I want to shout out is like another Minnelli film is The Bad and the Beautiful. Yeah, it's another great performance from him. Uh, I of course love his small part in Out of the Past, which is a big breakout for him, as well as a film he did called Champion. Um, and you know, he's just a, he's a huge star. He was a huge star and we're, we miss him dearly, I think already. And I'm so glad that we took the time to honor his memory and his great work and, you know, the important and lasting impact he left on Hollywood here on this week's podcast. Yeah. A pretty special week having a big international win and then saying goodbye to an American celebrity who made such a huge difference in our pictures. Yes, and and so thanks again, Calvin, for letting us come together to talk about this great film and yeah. uh, highlighting Sonic the Hedgehog. 
Yeah. Oh no, Paths of Glory. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, that one. That one is the one I meant. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was good. I I really enjoy Paths of Glory. I don't know how I'd rank it with Kubrick, but we'll get to that someday. I'm certain one day we'll talk about his oeuvre, you know, in in total at some point. But it's definitely up there. It's a uh, one could argue it's his best film, but you could argue that for most of his films as well. I think. Oh yes, his oeuvre. We'll get to it. <laughs> um, I. Uh, yeah, I feel good about it. Uh, we'll rank all the Sonic the Hedgehog video game adaptations <laughs> next time.